We are today focusing on uh, the question of Yemen uh, going where. Uh, this is a country that is of immense importance in terms of the histories of the Arab countries, the Middle East, the Islamic world. It is also often referred to as the poorest or the next to the poorest. Uh, if you take Somalia's case, a member of the League of Arab States, uh, having a situation worse than that of Yemen or even parts of uh, Mauritania uh, in the Comoros uh, Islands, uh, they are also members of the 22 countries of the League of Arab States. Uh, the specialists that we have here are renowned nationally and internationally. Uh, they're renowned in the realm of scholarship and academe, and they're renowned also in the realms of public policy and public service. Uh, their introductions will not be by me. Uh, they are on the uh, sheets of paper that were placed on each and every uh, seat, along with uh, three-by-five cards that we ask uh, you to write your questions on uh, and make them questions and to the point uh, rather than uh, commentary, unless uh, the five of us have grossly overlooked or ignored or downplayed as something of significance. I don't think that that's likely. Uh, but um, it, it, stranger things have happened. Uh, we're talking about a country whose government, as uh, one of our speakers is often fond of saying, is the, the always failing state. Uh, others are increasingly referring to it as a rogue state. Still others uh, on the cusp of civil war. Still more in terms of a failed state. Still more in terms of a country's prospects that could hardly um, be better than, for the short term, near to hopeless. Uh, what are the roots of this kind of uh, despair or pessimism? Uh, they include the following uh, that need to be underscored. And indeed, numbers <coughs> oftentimes will help people in their strategic focus, uh, like few other phenomena. Here we're talking about a population of around 27 million, which would almost all be citizens, and that number being not just equal to, but greater than, the six states of the Gulf Cooperation Council. Uh, we're talking about a country whose unemployment is a minimum of 35 percent, closer arguably to 40 percent. Think of that in terms of the angst and the despair of Americans who are unemployed. Uh, think of the country also in terms of what its oft prime minister has told me on numerous occasions is comprised of 130,000 villages of under 200 people in each. When you have a situation like that, you have no 
public sewer system, no electrical grid, scarcely a clean, sanitary, and pumped water system, uh, no clinic, let alone a hospital, and where candidates for public office run not on let's have a new road in my district, but let's just have a, a graded road that would be leveled and no ready system of transportation in terms of buses or taxis, let alone railroads as such. Uh, we're talking about a youth population uh, whose unemployment is even greater. And those graduating from secondary school or middle school who are searching for jobs that simply don't exist. And you have the confusion here between regime change and state change or state prolongation, where a country that is massively impoverished needs as much as anything capacity building. And capacity building doesn't happen in a day. Capacity building takes a long time, and it requires patience by those building the capacity, whether they be from within and from without. And realizing without such capacity building, uh, no country has any hope for elemental security, elemental political stability, elemental material well-being, elemental functioning effectively of a system of civil justice. These are just but a few of the challenges that need to be in the minds of our speakers, us, and those in the audience. Where we have within the last week some nine international aid and humanitarian groups uh, concluding uh, that some 40% of Yemen's children are on the edge of malnutrition and their needs are urgent and especially those under the age of five uh, where in the coming days as many as 250,000 uh, could very easily die. Our first speaker will be hardly any stranger to the topic, let alone to the audience. Uh, Barbara Bodine, a much accomplished American diplomat, career foreign service officer, former ambassador to Yemen, uh, heroine to many during the Iraqi occupation of Kuwait, and a scholar-in-residence at the uh, Princeton University, along with uh, her colleague to her left, Gregory Johansson. Um, Ambassador Bodine will speak first. Well, thank you, John, for uh, organizing this event, um, bringing together some of my favorite colleagues, uh, and for your introduction, which is significantly shortened some of my remarks. Uh, 
Um, <laughs> so, having laid out laid out some of the basics, I think this is very very useful. Um, my job, as described to me this morning, was to kind of give the the broad overview uh, within which the the other members of the panel will will comment on some specifics. Um, and so, you know, pardon me for kind of a, a little bit of a history lesson, but that's apparently what I was I was hired to do this morning. Um, the topic this morning is crisis Yemen going. Excuse me, going where? Uh, and and the first thing that came to mind was uh, the first time I kind of came across a, a title like that, and almost anything on Yemen seems to have crisis Yemen, Yemen on the brink. Yemen on the precipice, Yemen on the window ledge, uh, you know, Yemen at the crossroads. And the the first time I came across a, um, a title like that um, in regards to Yemen, um, kind of a I kind of imagine Wolf Blitzer standing in front of a very large screen with holographs of uh, Mansour Hadi or something. Um, but the first time I kind of came across that was was actually when I was a very junior officer, and uh, Yemen, North Yemen. Um, had just survived its its second presidential assassination in nine months, and a, a very minor lieutenant colonel from an obscure and extraordinarily minor tribe had just been elevated to the presidency, uh, not by acclamation and, and not on the basis of his own power base or political skills, but, but as kind of a stopgap measure uh, while the traditional elites tried to figure out who would really be the next leader. And our embassy, and, and a member of, of the embassy at that time is actually here, and this is kind of a frightening audience to talk to. There's so much experience here. But our embassy famously gave him six months uh, in office and outlined in a stunning, or at least a rather stunningly long series of cables, uh, the insurmountable channel challenges that this young leader in this very impoverished country faced. And this series was called Yemen at the Crossroads. Um, that, of course, was over 30 years ago, and, and Yemen in many ways is, is still at those crossroads. Uh, and uh, the question is whether or not you know, we will be there to help provide a map and some assistance for them to move forward. Um, despite Yemen's millennially long history and the involvement of the Ottomans and the British empires, and I said this was going to be a history lesson, trade routes that go into Asia and Africa and into the Mediterranean, the U.S. is a newcomer to Yemen. Our focus and our interests in the Middle East have always been elsewhere. In the 1950s, the imam with three quarreling superpowers on his doorstep, set us all on a quest with the winner presumably to gain his favor. And what the, the challenge was was to build a series of roads in Yemen. And the Soviet Union got one, one leg of the triangle. The Chinese got another leg of the triangle. And the Soviet Union got the third leg of the triangle. The Chinese, who are very good at building roads, uh, one hands down for their road from Sana'a over the mountains to the port of Hodeidah. 
Uh, history does not record um, much about the Soviet road, but the leg that the United States built came up very short, um, not in distance, but we refused to even pave our road. The, Saya, the Sana Tayez McCullough leg uh, was left un, unpaved. And in effect, this is very much emblematic of our relationship ever since. Um, it's been a relationship that's been driven by the shifting feds of foreign policy in Washington and the shifting focus of, glo- of, of our Cold War politics and the broader context globally of which Yemen was, was, to be honest, often a bit player. It was also, I think, been a history of half-completed pro- projects um, and unfulfilled promises and inconsistent assistance. Our grant of recognition to the struggling government uh, in 1962 was cut short not only by the disgruntlement of our allies, um, who did not like our recognition, but by the 1967 war, uh, which shuttered all of our embassies in the Middle East. Um, although we did not walk away from South Yemen for, for two more years, and to borrow a quip from the British ambassador at the time, it was the first time that a ship had left a sinking rat. Um, we did not return until the 1990s. It was a full five years after we left that we were actually able to begin the, recogni- the reconstruction of our diplomatic relations with Yemen returning to favor as the first Arab state in 1972 to uh, reopen an American embassy. And you can well imagine uh, the reaction of the Secretary of State's protective detail when his plane landed in Sana'a and he was immediately surrounded by rifle-toting, jambia-wearing, and sword-twirling tribesmen. However, we did survive uh, the graciousness of the Saudi Welcoming Committee, and economic assistance, although modest, was restored, and, and far more modest economic assistance. That continued until about the 1979 war, which is its own remarkable history. Yemeni history, and and we can talk mostly about most of that in terms of the U.S. means North Yemeni history, has always been tumultuous. It neither began nor ended with the Republican Revolution in the 60s. but has had ups and downs that really can only be probably best uh, compared to Brigadoon in the Middle East. Few states, I think, though, in looking at the history of Yemen, North Yemen and, and unified Yemen, I think in, in, it's easy to go through all of the reasons why, and I think I'm the author of the phrase, it's the always almost, not always failing state, but the always almost failing state, that why it hasn't failed, and I think it's interesting to look at what it has survived. Few states, I think, could have weathered two assassination, the assassination of two heads of state in nine months, a string of lesser coups, an armed invasion by its neighbor, an externally supported insurgency, um, as well as instability that resulted from an extended undemarcated border. And that was just between 1978 and 2000. It not only survived, um, but rather than fragment, as I think many people have long predicted that Yemen will do, it actually more than doubled in size once with the unification in 1990 and again with the demarcation of the border 
or ten years later with Saudi Arabia that added the equivalent of five Lebanons in terms of territory. Um, it has avoided famine. Um, it has been chronically undernourished uh, for its entire history, but it has avoided the famines that chronically rack its neighbors across the Horn of Africa, and it has avoided the complete state failure that defines Somalia for over 20 years. And I think it is fair to give it credit that it began a fitful, but most importantly, an indigenous experiment in democracy well before that was fashionable in the Middle East. Whatever its problems and whatever it has accomplished has rarely been the result of sustained U.S. involvement. Um, by and large, we have assisted Yemen at critical junctions. We supported independence in 1962. We were integral, I think, to the end of the Civil War and territorial integrity in 79, and we supported the unity in 1994. But we have never really decided what sort of relationship that we want with Yemen, and nor have we ever really put towards that relationship the resources necessary. Our attention and our assistance has waxed and waned, it's been buffeted by forces and events that have more often not have, have had very little bearing on Yemen itself. We have very little direct interest in Yemen. It's not an oil producer. Our economic assistance swings wildly. Our military assistance has been very erratic. And our diplomatic rhetoric towards Yemen has also been inconsistent. Beyond cliched incantations of current policy dynamics, and the most current one, of course, is counterterrorism, we have had a hard time defining why and whether we need to be there and routinely return Yemen to the back burner until events prove our inconsistency a mistake again. We have done ourselves and our friends in Yemen a disservice, and I think we continue to. I think all parties, U.S. and Yemeni, Yemeni and its neighbors, can all agree on the long-term strategic goals. We want a stable, economically sustaining, unified state that can and will provide for its citizens, impose no threats to its neighbors or our interests. That goal defines virtually any state in the, in the world. The problem is that when you take it down a level, how does the U.S. define its interests and how do the Yemenis define their own, and do they converge, diverge, or just run parallel with periodic intersections? The current U.S. convention on policy towards Yemen would probably break down as combat extremism and terrorism, ensure Red Sea stability for international shipping, preserve regional security, preempt a proxy war uh, by, Saudi, by the Saudis and or the Iranians, and mitigate instability that would create a humanitarian or a refugee crisis. On most, if not all of those, I think most Yemenis would agree. More Yemenis have died at the hands of AQAP than Americans. Yemen, even Marxist South Yemen, never attempted or even threatened to block the Bab el-Mandab, and many Yemenis believe that piracy inhibits the revitalization of the port of Aden. Yemenis want to be neither a dependency of Saudi Arabia nor an extension of Iran, and they most certainly do not want to be ground zero for someone else's proxy war. And certainly, they want to avoid a major humanitarian crisis. The disconnect 
is that while important, our objectives are all external to Yemen itself, and none of them address the core fundamental challenges that threaten the stability, security, and sustainability, or the viability of the state, much less the lives of the average Yemenis. I have cannot possibly do this in one minute. Um, these objectives address the symptoms um, and the consequences of the challenges, but we have not addressed the challenges themselves. Um, John has very well gone over what the basic challenges are. I would just want to underscore that while these challenges are not new, um, that they have taken on a greater urgency in the wake of the Arab awakening. If there is a fundamental theme to the Arab awakening, it is that the people of the region, and it includes the Yemenis and their change in government last February, the focus is on the, a change in social contract between the government and the governed, where the internal economic governance, personal needs of the people must be addressed. And on that, I think that what the United States needs to be looking at is to start addressing these issues directly uh, for the long-term stability of Yemen and not just looking at the short-term security. To um, to borrow a very short story from a very good Yemeni friend of mine that I met with a couple of years ago just before the Arab awakening, he said that he, that neither the government nor the people in Yemen um, opposed or objected to our fight against al-Qaeda and, and terrorism. But what he thought was our mistake and what he, was, he, he advised us to do was not to shift our focus away from security, but to open our aperture to include the medium and long-term challenges of economic development, governance, human capacity building. And as he said, if we do not open our aperture and look at the medium and long-term needs of Yemen, we will never be able to adequately address our short-term concerns about security and extremism. Thank you. Next, uh, Gregory Johansson. Right. Um, thank you all for coming out. It's okay. it's it's nice to see so many uh, so many friends in the audience, and I've been tasked with with talking about Al Qaeda, and and I have about 12 minutes to do this, and so I'm going to keep my remarks fairly brief, and then hopefully, hopefully, if if we have any questions, we can dig a little bit more in depth in the in the question and answer session that that I think um, comes after this. I wanted to do basically three things this morning in in talking about Al Qaeda. I wanted to look at, at what the U.S. response has been to the growing threat of al-Qaeda in recent years. And then I wanted to talk about what I at least see as al-Qaeda's strategy, um, what's happening right now, and then sort of lay out what I see as far as the group moving forward in, in the future. Um, sort of, I, I, I think that the organization is at a bit of a crossroads right now. And then in the, in the final, what I'm sure will be about 30 seconds, um, I'll lay out what if, what if anything can actually be, um, be done. So I, I think, I mean, there's, there's a very deep and, and I think fairly rich history of how 
how al-Qaeda in, in Yemen has developed over the years that goes back into the 1980s, and, and unfortunately we don't have a lot of time to get into that. And so if you'll, if you'll sort of excuse me, I'll just sort of skip over a couple of decades of history. I think Ambassador Bodine did, a, did an excellent job of putting, putting Yemen in, in the context. And, and we'll start, I think, with, with what has been sort of the U.S. response recently. And, and this, I think, we, we start in, in December of 2009. And this is sort of the first U.S. strike on what the U.S. believed was an al-Qaeda target in Yemen uh, under President Obama. And this was a cruise missile strike. Um, the U.S. Uh, attacked what it believed to be an al-Qaeda training camp. Uh, unfortunately, it later turned out to be rather, rather a Bedouin village. And so there are a number of, of civilian casualties in this. And this has been, in the, in the United States, we've sort of moved on from this raid. It, it, it took place near the village of, of Al-Majla, and, and that's the name it's been given. But this is still, I think, something that's very important in the Yemeni context. It's something when you look at al-Qaeda's propaganda, what the organization puts out, they continue to refer to this. And, and I think it's really been um, a, a recruiting boon for the, for the organization. Um, but that's something that, that started in December, December 17, 2009. This is really when the U.S. first started carrying out um, a, a very... Uh, concentrated military campaign against al-Qaeda in, in response to what it felt was the was the growing threat. Of course, this campaign only picked up then after um, a, the underwear bomber, the so-called underwear bomber, narrowly averted bringing down the uh, uh, airliner over Detroit. This kept up through the spring of 2010. Um, the U.S. made a, a, another mistake when it uh, killed the deputy governor of Marib, an individual named Jabir al-Shabwani, and, and four of his bodyguards in May of 2010, and there, at this point, it, at least it appears, I mean, obviously, as, as m- many of us in this room know, keeping track of which strikes are carried out by the U.S., what are carried out by Yemen, is a very difficult thing. There are a lot of organizations that are devoting a lot of time to this right now, but obviously the Obama administration in the U.S. is keeping um, many of these very close to the vest, and the Yemeni government doesn't help as well. There's, of course, the famous WikiLeaks cable where the Deputy Prime Minister for <coughs> Security Affairs, Joe jokes about lying to the Yemeni parliament, saying that we'll keep saying the bombs are ours and not yours. This is in a meeting with Petraeus in January of 2010. Um, and this that pattern, even though the, the government of Yemen has changed and there's a new president, that, that pattern of obfuscation has continued in which the Yemeni government often takes credit for the attacks or claims that um, the Yemeni Air Force is carrying out many of these attacks. Some of these were taking place when the Yemeni Air Force was in mutiny, um, and it, it seems to stretch the, the imagination a bit to imagine that um, that all of these were Yemeni strikes. But anyways, in, in 2010, it appears that there's a bit of a break for a while, particularly after the Shabwani strike, another the, the U.S. mistake that I referred to earlier. But by 2011, when the Arab Spring um, in Yemen is really taking off, the U.S. once again starts carrying out strikes. Um, it attempted to kill Anwar al-Awlaki in, in May of 2011, and then eventually did kill him in September, of course, of 2011, killed his son, um, a 16-year-old American citizen, um, in another mistaken strike uh, a few weeks later in October of 2011. And then we get to February um, 2012, February of this year, when President Hadi um, takes office, when he's installed in power. And at this point, what happens is I think we've seen, and I think most of the evidence bears this out, is that there's a dramatic 
increase in the number of strikes that the U.S. is carrying out. And basically, I think what's happening is that both President Hadi and the U.S. are... They're getting in rather deep into what I think is a mutually dependent relationship in which President Hadi, when he came to power, did not have a very deep base of support within Yemen, and he needed the U.S. and the international community to support him very, very strongly on everything that it was that he was doing. And and I think um, the evidence bears this out. You see the U.S. and the international community making very strong statements in support of President Hadi over the past few months. And at the same time, the U.S. needs President Hadi to allow it to do what it wants to do in Yemen, which is largely go after and um, and target al-Qaeda. In this sort of two and a half years that I've laid out from December 2009 to 2012, I think we see a very interesting thing that, that um, recent reports in, in the New York Times by, by Scott Shane and Joe Becker, the, the um, recent book by, by Daniel Clayman, um, both very good pieces of, of reporting, make clear that in 2009, President Obama and, and many of his senior staff were very worried about getting sucked deeper into a conflict in Yemen that they didn't understand. Understand. And so the U.S. wanted to limit the number of individuals and who exactly it was going after. I think for quite a long time, the U.S. said it was going after what it called the top two dozen figures in al-Qaeda that it felt were actively plotting against the United States. But what we've seen in this two and a half years, from 2009 up until today, is that the U.S. targeting restrictions have become much, much looser. And so, and I think the, what's happening on the ground bears this out. The number and the frequency of strikes that the U.S. is carrying out in Yemen strongly suggests that the U.S. can no longer just be targeting the top two dozen that it feels are plotting against the United States. Or if it is, they're in multiple places at the same time. Um, And so now... The U.S., I think, finds itself in a very interesting position. Despite everything that President Obama and his staff attempted to do, I think it finds itself in real danger of being in exactly the position today that it wanted to avoid in 2009. That is, being in sort of an open-ended conflict in Yemen against al-Qaeda with no real way to know if it's if it's winning. And in fact, if, if you look at certain barometers, it, it seems that it's, that it's losing and that the more it tries, the more it sort of is sucked deeper into this quicksand of, of, of what's happening. So that's sort of a brief overview, maybe not so brief for 12 minutes, but that, that's sort of the overview of, of, of what I see as the U.S. response to the growing threat of al-Qaeda. Now I want to sort of shift the focus a bit and look at al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula itself. And so I want to look at two things. First, what have these strikes done, both the drone and missile strikes? And I don't sort of want to, I don't want to get sidetracked in, in, in the technology that the U.S is using, whether it's drones or missiles or what have you. The U.S., I think, in Yemen, I think, uh, I think it's fairly clear, is using a variety of different tactics to go after, military tactics to go after al-Qaeda. So on, on the positive side for, for the U.S., these strikes have killed a number of mid-level commanders. So there are a number of individuals within the organization that have been killed, that continue to be killed. What they haven't done, however, is deal al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, the sort of knockout blow that the U.S was looking for, something similar to what happened in 2002 when the U.S. was able to kill Abu Ali al-Harathi in a, in a drone strike, and that sort of broke the back of the al-Qaeda organization in Yemen at the time, and in fact it destroyed it so much.
much that in, in 2004, 2005, the organization had virtually disappeared. There was no al-Qaeda violence. And at that point, Yemen looked like, at least in counterterrorism terms, a, a success. We have, again, looking from 2009 to 2012, if we look at sort of a snapshot of al-Qaeda in 2009, the group, um, for our best estimates, um, was about 200 to 300 members in December of, of 2009. This is what uh, Yemen's Foreign Minister al-Qurbi said. And more recently, in, in the spring of 2000, and in 2009, sorry, um, the organization controlled no territory. So it was, it was, a, it was a small um, group that the emir, the commander, had done a pretty good job of organizing them, but they, they didn't have really these safe havens. They were still moving about a lot. When you read the material that they put out, they talk about traveling all the time, going to these sort of mobile training camps where they meet to fire off some RPGs for a while and then disperse and then go meet back up. By earlier this spring, that that... Uh, that's changed quite a bit. The group is, has roughly tripled in size. Again, these are our best estimates. This is um, the group's now, um, or at least it was in the past month, up to about a thousand members, at least according to John Brennan. And up until very recently, the group had controlled and administered territory in the south, particularly in Abiyan and in Shebwa, where it had taken over some towns, um, famously renamed one of them. It had implemented its own security apparatus. It was running police stations. Um, many of it, much of its propaganda focused on the organization providing services, particularly water and electricity, which decades of government in the South, both socialists before unification in 1990, as well as President Saleh, had been unable to unable to provide. Um, so if we, if we sort of look at why, why al-Qaeda was able to grow so strong so fast, going from 200, 300 members in 2009 to more than 1,000 and controlling territory up until very recently, um, I, I think there, there are several reasons, but, but I think there are three reasons that I'd like to highlight. One, of course, is the collapse of the Yemeni military during the, during the Arab Spring. Um, many of us know, and I, I think Ambassador Bodine touched on this, how, how the Yemeni military sort of split. Um, there was there was really a, a security vacuum that opened up, particularly in, in the south in Abiyan and in Shebwa. It actually it opened up in other places in the country. And what you see are different groups taking advantage of this, whether it's the Houthis in Sada or whether it's Al Qaeda in, in Abiyan and in Shebwa. Also, we see the rise of a group uh, calling itself Ansar al Sharia. Um, I don't really have time to get into them and, and my views on their relationship to Al Qaeda right now. Um, but I'll, I'll do that uh, in the question and answer. The second, second reason I think it are for al-Qaeda growing so strong so quickly is the U.S. military strikes um, that took place, particularly the mistaken strikes. I think Ambassador Bodine alluded to this, and I, I would second her, that Yemenis by and large, and I think it's, it's difficult even to talk about sort of one Yemen when we're talking about public opinion, um, don't have a problem with al-Qaeda individuals being killed. What they, what they have a very serious problem with are, are civilian casualties. Mm -hmm. And then finally, 
um, the third reason for the group growing um, so strong so fast is, is this idea of success breeding success. And as Yemen, the more Yemen gets in the news, then we see more foreigners coming to the organization. Outside of Saudis, um, there are certainly some key foreigners within the organization, but I don't see them as being um, as prominent as some other individuals. So I, I said I'd have about 30 seconds for the last what, uh, what if anything, can be done. And, and in fact, I may have overestimated that. Um, let me give you three brief things. First, uh, framing. I, I think this war cannot be the U.S. against al-Qaeda in Yemen. I think that's always a war that the U.S. is going to lose. It, it can't just be about framing, but it certainly has to be, begin there. It can't end there, but it has to begin there. It can't be the U.S. versus al-Qaeda in Yemen. It has to be Yemen against al-Qaeda with the U.S. A, as an ally. Um, the second is that there's... There's, no, there's not going to be any shortage of targets within Yemen for the foreseeable future for the United States. And as I've sort of sat back and looked at U.S. policy, what appears to be happening is, this, is that the U.S. has really settled on, on the strategy of hope, basically firing missiles into Yemen in the hopes that it will keep al-Qaeda off balance enough that the organization won't be able to sort of plot, plan, and launch attacks against the United States. I don't think that... That, that approach is either wise or sustainable, and I don't think it works. Um, and then the, the, final, um, the final thing I, I would say is that the U.S. can't, I don't think, win the war against al-Qaeda in Yemen on its own, but it can certainly lose it on its own. Um, and such obvious by the United States in Yemen tends to tilt the tables against what the United States is trying to do. It has to, I think, do a much better job of opening up space for tribes and clerics to act against al-Qaeda. Um, we can go into, into this uh, uh, a bit more. I'm not arguing against... Um, or I'm not saying take drones or military strikes off the table, but I think such a heavy reliance as current U.S. policy is on them creates much more problems than it solves. And I would leave you with just this, this final thought um, in my remarks. The current leadership of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula came of age in the late 1990s. I would argue that the environment in Yemen today is much more radical than that that produced people like Nasr al-Waheshi, Qasem al-Raimi, who came up with the idea for, for some of these underwear, underwear bomb plots. And so if the environment is that much more radical, what is being sort of concocted in Yemen today? So with that, I will, I will leave it to two, I'm sure, much more eloquent and uh, time-compliant speakers than myself. Next is Charles Schmidt. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, I've been tasked to talk about the economy. I wanted to echo some of Ambassador Bodine's. Uh, mic sort of is, in, your mic isn't on. Yeah, it is. Is that on? Okay. Uh, I, I want to echo some of Ambassador Bodine's uh, impressions about Yemen. Uh, there, there's a lot of adjectives and you know crisis and bad and, and falling off the precipice and all this kind of stuff, uh, and not a lot of whole uh, of, of sort of clear thinking and, and data and comparative analysis of, of Yemen. So uh, the first thing I want to do is do a quick uh, context. Uh, you know, uh, it, it is one of the poorer states if we use GDP per capita in the Arab world uh, in terms of the human uh, the, the 
the UNDP's Human Development Index, it, it, it rates above Mauritania and it rates above uh, 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 the Sudan, um, and it rates far, far above all the sub-Saharan African yeah. countries. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's not a basket case. We, we get from the press, we get from impressions that it is a basket case. It's not a basket case, and, and in the last uh, 40 years, and, and in the last 20 years, there have been major achievements that have been done. Uh, you know, anybody who was in Yemen in the 70s and 80s and then goes back again they're stunned at the progress that the Yemenis have made in terms of infrastructure, in terms of uh, road building, particularly in the last 10 years the road building is, is outstanding in, in Yemen. Uh, so there has been a substantial infrastructural development and social infrastructural development there has been as well. Uh, it's, it's, Yemen is famous for ending up in the bottom of the gender equality index uh, but, but that, I think that needs to be revisited. Uh, if you look at, for example, uh, female, female literacy at the uh, 15 to 24 year old cohort, it is caught up with men uh, and almost, and, and they're about 85%, which puts them on a relatively high by global standards level of literacy. So uh, for all the complaints we have about uh, the Yemeni state, uh, they, it has achieved objective uh, uh, advances, a considerable one in the last uh, uh, 40 years, which seem to be ignored in this constant crisis thing. Um, the crisis, uh, uh, there, are, there are different places where the crisis uh, uh, impression comes from, uh, but uh, the, the one that most people focus on is uh, natural resources, the depletion of oil. Uh, the Yemeni economy uh, in the last 40 years, since the founding republic, uh, it relied on two sources of wealth. Uh, first, there was the, uh, the uh, labor uh, export economy uh, in the 70s and 80s when Yemenis picked up and went off to mainly Saudi Arabia but also the other Gulf states and sent the money back. That transformed the Yemeni economy uh, from sort of a, a relatively isolated subsistence economy into a consumer import economy fueled by uh, worker remittances coming back. As that economy actually didn't fall off as much as it was replaced by uh, an oil export economy that begins in the, well, it begins way back, but really it, it booms in the 90s and, and in the 2000s. Uh, and, of course, oil is, is running out in Yemen. Um, and uh, so people are very fearful of, of Yemen because the oil uh, is running out. Uh, but what I want to point out is that is that uh, growth is not dependent on natural resources. And I'll just give you two examples. Uh, the sub-Saharan Africa is it should be, if, if, if natural resources were the source of growth, it should be the richest part of the world, and it's not, it's the poorest. And then Japan, which has no natural resources, but it's one of the richest countries in the world. And the Japanese example shows you what wealth is built upon. It's built upon labor. It's built upon labor productivity. Uh, and, and that's where the Yemeni economy is going to have to focus uh, in the future, how to do that. Yemen is transitioning to a new, uh, more diversified economy. Uh, it's an economy that won't be uh, dependent upon one source of income, as, it, as in the past, labor export or, or oil or something like that. And a, and a diversified economy is a better economy. It's a more robust economy because you know, if, if, if one part of the economy uh, goes down, there are others that can step in and replace it. Uh, this, this is a positive development for Yemen. Uh, there are uh, difficulties, though, in this, in this transition to a more... Uh, uh, diversified economy. Um, there are 
uh, Yemen has suffered from the curse of oil, the curse of natural resources, uh, in the sense that uh, Yemen has become dependent upon oil in, in different ways. Uh, and this, the, the most important of that is the rentier state, the fact that the state has been dependent, uh, particularly on it for its income, on, on oil, and that's going away. So the state's budgetary crisis is uh, a, a critical issue that, that the Yemeni state is, is, is facing. But, you know, Greece and, and Spain and Italy are also facing that crisis, so Yemen's not alone in this. Uh, in the future, uh, growth has to be dependent upon uh, uh, raising the productivity of, of Yemeni labor in the long-term strategy. Uh, and I want to I focus on the long-term strategy because I think that uh, uh, a real solution to the Yemeni problems, uh, Yemeni economic problems, have to be thought of in the 20-year term and the 30-year term, not in the two-year term. Two-year term doesn't work in Yemen. Uh, it, that, can, that can band-aid some short uh, humanitarian crises or a, or a budget crises or something like this, but the solutions are in a much longer-term perspective. Um, and uh, in, in the long term, Yemen has to create a, uh, a, a what's called, what, what Danny Roderick calls a domestic investment transition. That's to say, a sustained period of domestic investment. Uh, Yemen is not going to be saved by, by foreign investors. Foreign investors are not going to come to Yemen and, and pull it out. Uh, real change in Yemen, real economic growth is going to come from domestic uh, uh, Yemeni investors, and and uh, the Yemeni there is a vibrant Yemeni uh, uh, private sector, uh, but the relationship between the private sector and the state in the last 20 years has deteriorated to the, to the point where uh, anybody who has anybody any money in Yemen, the first thing they do is they get it out. If we want to look at a, an indicator for a success in the Yemeni economy, watch the capital flows. As soon as Yemeni money is is coming into Yemen instead of going out, then we've we've achieved success. In, in in the 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 Yemeni economy. It's when Yemeni investors are uh, taking the money they accumulate and putting it back into the Yemeni economy. Uh, that's that's when we're, 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 we've seen the success, and that's that's what we have to create. We ha uh, Yemen has to create a a, a domestic environment in which uh, wealth can be accumulated and reinvested in the, in the economy. This is a sustained uh, investment transition. Um, how do you do that? Well, uh, one, of the, one of the most important things in this, and this is what I want to emphasize, is state capacity. Uh, it's, it's not the case that the state sort of creates a, an environment and sits there and says, you know, we, we've created a pretty stable uh, environment. Uh, you know, investors, please come. You know, sort of put posters up in international airports or something like that and say, hey, you know, uh, uh, come, come invest. You know, pictures of beaches. Come invest in Yemen. That's not the state's role. Uh, the, the, the state has to uh, uh, sort of create a, a private sector. Uh, certainly, uh, getting the confidence of the Yemeni private sector is important, but also the, the state has to have a long-term investment plan for Yemen and help Yemeni investors uh, invest in those strategic uh, parts of the economy that will lead to long-term growth. Uh, simply leaving uh, the economy to the hand of the market doesn't work. Uh, it, there has to be a, a, a vision for development. There has to be a, a long-term uh, uh, vision for development, uh, and, the, and the state has to step in and help coordinate investment. There are many uh, long-term coordination problems that the state has to step in and, and, and solve. But this uh, this 
uh, uh, requires state capacity. And I would suggest that, that uh, state capacity is the critical factor in Yemen's future, Yemen's economic future. Of course, this depends upon a political settlement. One of the things that, that gives state, uh, a state capacity is legitimacy. Uh, a, a, a broad-based legitimate government is one that uh, people believe in and people will uh, follow and it will, it will uh, help create an invested environment. Um, one of the, the critical in the, in the short term or I would say medium period uh, uh, issues is state taxation. This has been an issue for a while. The state has, has noticed that the international development agencies have pointed out that when the oil runs out, the state budget's basically gone uh, and it's going to have to begin to tax uh, domestic uh, society. Uh, it's, it's Since 2005, it's been an issue with the private sector. They're beginning to work on it. This is critical because it builds relationships between the state and uh, Yemeni society. Whereas in the oil period, the rentier state, uh, the money came in regardless of the relationship to the private sector, regardless of the relationship to Yemeni society. Now that relationship uh, is the source of Yemeni, the Yemeni state's funds. Uh, and so uh, taxation is a critical issue, uh, funding the state budget. In the short term, uh, international actors, the Gulf states, they can help out. They can dump money. The Saudis have already done it. Uh, but helping out with immediate budget needs, this is an, uh, an important factor for Yemen. But that's a short-term band-aid measure. The long-term it's going to require development of taxation. Um, the, the, uh, the, the creation of, of social investment education is critical. Uh, and uh, though I, I said that the Yemeni education system has had, has had some, by the measures, uh, some tremendous successes, it still needs a lot of work and, and it's a place where the international community could, could, could help as well. Um, then uh, well, uh, you know, the state, the state needs to develop capacity, but the State Department here also needs to develop capacity. And, uh, and, and here, I think it's not just uh, some expertise. I think we're, I'm hearing that we're getting more qualified people to go into Yemen. But the critical thing is, uh, echoing Ambassador Boudin again, is a long-term strategy, not politicized. That, that we have to recognize that we're going to be, if we're serious about Yemen, it's a 20-year project, it's a 30-year project, and that our support for Yemen cannot be uh, dependent upon the political whims uh, of, of the White House or the, of, of whoever else. Okay, one minute. Uh, so let me say, uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of immediate needs, of course, security. Security is critical. You've got to have the lights on. You've got to have uh, uh, you know, the gas uh, and the oil uh, uh, leaving. Actually, uh, revenues were actually up last year, I was astounded to find out, uh, because oil prices are uh, very high. And Yemen ha does have some luck sometimes. Um, and so though there are a lot of disruptions, the oil income uh, from last year was, was actually up. Um, uh, uh, unemployment is a huge issue in Yemen. Of course, uh, a very young population, a lot of people coming onto the job market right now. Uh, so uh, for the international community, another critical thing that can be done is the training of, of Yemeni labor. Uh, 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 and there, some of this is going on. The Gulf states are doing it, but it can be done on a much larger level. Um, and for me, uh, one of the critical things is, uh, and this is a medium term, uh, getting Yemeni labor back into Saudi Arabia, getting Yemeni labor in large numbers back into the Gulf. This is a hot political issue. This is the 
they absolutely refuse. They have all kinds of excuses why the Yemeni labor uh, can't come into it. But it's really a political issue. And this is where the United States could actually play a very, very helpful role uh, in, in supplying political leadership and in, in twisting arms a little bit and convincing the, the Gulf states that they could be much more cooperative on, on this realm. Um, so uh, this would help relieve uh, some of the unemployment and, and get people back in. Uh, then, of course, there are immediate uh, humanitarian needs as well uh, in terms of the IDPs, in terms of the internally displaced people, displaced people and whatnot, uh, and the cash inflows that come in to the budget, that come in to the, to the relief efforts and whatnot. Of course, they stimulate demand in, in Yemen, which is a good thing. Uh, but again, they're short-term. So I think there's a short-term sets of, of cash inflows that are important and need to be done. But the focus on the long-term has to be on uh, raising Yemeni uh, labor productivity, and the state plays a critical role, and building state capacity is going to be the key thing there. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. Um, to wrap up, uh, before our discussion Q&A, uh, three by five cards. And even before this uh, final uh, speaker, I wanted to thank uh, Ms. Uh, Joan uh, Brisson, uh, who has uh, made it possible for us to use the facilities of this uh, lovely club, lovely institution, which most people weren't even aware of or had a chance to go to before. Um, she's with the um, Comprehensive Health Care Services. And in the front row here, for those who um, need comprehensive health care service. Uh, Robert Chop. That's up to the Supreme Court. <laughs> yes. Well, good morning, distinguished speakers, participants, and guests. Thank you also to the National Council uh, for the invitation and for bringing together such a large group to talk about Yemen. Um, the NISA Center, uh, New East South Asia Center, where I work, is honored to partner with Dr. John Duke Anthony and the National Council for this event. Um, Dr. Anthony's knowledge and views are Yemen in, on Yemen, in my view, are uh, probably second to none, uh, derived from many, many years of academic and practical experience of the Arabian Peninsula. And I think I'm right in saying that he's the only American who has attended all GCC's annual ministerial and heads of state meetings. And that's 30 meetings over a period of 30 years he's attended every single one. Uh, it's also my distinct pleasure to be on the panel with uh, the speakers who you've heard so far, and I've certainly listened to everything they've said, and taken copious notes. Um, I want to make clear today I do not speak on behalf of the government of the United States, uh, nor the Department of Defense, nor the NISA Center, I speak for myself, and if you're concerned about the strange accent, I am a naturalized American. <laughs> Unlike, unlike you, I choose to live here. <laughs> Welcome to the right side of history. Thank you, ma'am. Um, so Aiden's not my, my, not my fault. Um, I, I love Yemen. I love its people. I love its culture. Um, I think we all do. But I, I'm going to be talking very realistically rather than romantically or idealistically. So in my view, Yemen needs to know what we can and what we will be able to do realistically rather than what we wish we could do. Um, and the era of the United States trying to be all things to all people is over. The US is not only going to pick and choose what countries and regions we focus on, but we're also going to pick and choose precisely what we do within those countries and regions. It's all about money, it's all about interests. So please consider what happened in Libya 
and also what might occur in Syria and then take a look at what's happening or not happening in Somalia and then ask yourself what is realistic with respect to Yemen. Um, now, much to the deep and widespread chagrin of our Yemeni leaders, our friends, uh, the US approach to Yemen for most of the past decade has been, and presently, is overwhelmingly counter-terrorism focused. Now, beyond that, we look for the GCC countries to provide leadership, political support, uh, and economic as well as fiscal assistance for a full range of economic, political, and social issues directed at the macro, the meso, and the micro level of Yemen society. We also look for a focused contribution from within Yemen. And therefore, you know, I, I agree with uh, what Charles Schmitz wrote recently through Carnegie titled Building a Better Yemen. Um, but what this means is that expectations of a more robust U.S. role should be held in check. Well, I'm going to speak specifically about two points. First of all, about the defense policy rebalancing, the strategic context derived from the new U.S. defense policy rebalancing into the Indian Ocean region, because that provides an opportunity for Yemen and also its uh, neighbors. And second, I'm going to talk about what can be done to support Yemen, and you should consider these as, as Bob Sharp's advice to the current administration and the next administration for what that's worth. Um, so, first of all, defence policy rebalancing. The administration's January 2012 priorities for 21st century defence, defence guidance, articulates a strategic rebalancing into the Indian Ocean region. The policy emphasises building partnership through assisting partner capacity. As I outlined in a recent uh, conference with uh, John Duke uh, to celebrate the 31st anniversary of the GCC, the globe's busiest and most important trade interstate within rich rising powers of India and China will wrestle to protect the flow of resources to their increasing populations is the Indian Ocean region. And the resources to support that will come from the Middle East. And if you assume um, that world energy consumption is going to rise by 50% by 2030, as articulated by Kaplan in his book Monsoon, with 40% of crude oil passing through the Strait of Hormuz in the west and 50% of world merchant fleet hosted east in the Strait of Malacca, there is an enormous opportunity presented because a rising tide lifts all boats, meaning the increased flow of resources and revenue generated will help regional stability, security and economy if the opportunity is taken. The proximity of the Babel Mendeb to the port of Aden suggests that developing the port, as Ambassador Bodine has, has regularly um, suggested, makes sense. Thank you. I agree with you, ma'am. Um, although the port has been largely undeveloped since the British left in 1967, <laughs> uh, the logic of investment is, is obvious. If you invest in Aden's port um, and Yemen's Coast Guard, you can secure the southern end of the Suez Canal and thereby you can share the growing you know, benefit uh, for regional prosperity. But somebody has to make that investment. Okay, so what can be done to support Yemen? Um, I'm told that Yemeni officials at the Friends of Yemen meeting in Riyadh said they needed $8 billion in foreign assistance in the coming years to overcome Yemen's security challenges. Um, I believe there are three key players in Yemen's future and uh, I would put them in the following order of priority of their impact 
to try and fix Yemen. First of all, the GCC countries. Second, Yemen. Third, the US. Um, so let me focus, therefore, on what the US could and maybe should do. And I'll refer to the US National Security Council's Yemen Strategic Plan, which focuses on three tasks. First task is combating al-Qaeda in the short term. Second task is increasing development assistance to meet longer-term challenges. Okay? The word long-term occurs in a National Security Council document. Okay? And the third one is marshalling international support in order to maximise global efforts to stabilise Yemen. Okay? So it's like phone a friend or ask the family in that, uh, that, that series. So I'll talk about each in turn. First of all, combating al-Qaeda in the short term. Uh, the US has adopted a lead role for countering terrorism in Yemen. It's where the, the, the US can provide effort and it's where US money is available. Um, we can also help by training Yemen counterterrorism forces. I think we can work more closely with Saudi Arabia. I think despite the relative success of the uh, upgraded underwear bomber um, attack, we must ensure our policies are coordinated for maximum effect. Maybe we can convince the Saudis to work harder to ensure that no money gets to former President Salah, nor his seed, his relatives. Maybe we can convince the Saudis to take a lead role to ensure former President Salah and his family are relocated and set up somewhere else. Maybe we can encourage GCC countries to accept Yemen as an associate member of the GCC, attending most, if not all, the meetings. Um, and the U.S. will certainly have a role in terms of supporting any potential future U.N. <coughs> resolutions as necessary. Talking a little bit about increasing development assistance to meet long-term cha challenges, you know, times have changed. And due to the economic crisis and growing fiscal constraints, the U.S. cannot resource Yemen alone. U.S. funding for Yemen has waxed and waned, as Ambassador Bodine said in recent history, from a drop when Yemen sided with Saddam Hussein uh, in the 1991 Gulf War, an increase after the USSF coal bombing, and then later when Yemen suppressed al-Qaeda, we reduced the funding. Um, but under the Obama administration, USA to Yemen in the period 2006-2008 was at about 36 million a year, and in the period 2009-2010, it's increased to about $185 million a year. But that's peanuts, isn't it? Um, through Friends of Yemen, Saudi Arabia has agreed to pledge $3.25 billion to support Yemeni development projects and Yemeni government efforts to improve security. I'm also told they pledged $2 billion for oil. $5.25 billion compared with $185 million. So GCC countries, therefore, can and must lead Yemen's development. The US, as I've described, cannot self-generate the volume, and there is not the will. But the US understands about generating money, um, and therefore we can support the creation of something like a, a fund of funds for Yemen. You know, a fund of funds that specifically targets Yemen to inject the necessary volume of funds. Uh, this could be an independent mechanism set to support institutional development, or it could be um, something that supports the generation of the jobs that we've all been talking about in Yemen, but also in Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, and uh, Qatar, etc. 
Um, so on to the third point, marshalling international support in order to maximise global efforts to stabilise Yemen. Politically, political stabilisation in Yemen works best as a GCC lead. Um, the Secretariat of the GCC should maybe be expanded, strengthened and empowered for Yemen in order to try and address the current stalemate within the government and maybe press forward on the GCC broker deal. <coughs> Governance on and participation. Yemen needs to develop the capacity and the capability of its government and it needs institutional development, as, as certainly Charles said. Um, it needs to ensure that it has sufficient human capacity in place to manage the change that everybody is saying should be happening. Um, where I work at the NISA Centre, we have educated and trained over 100 Yemeni government officials in national security strategy and whole-of-government approaches to try and foster relations and build partner capacity. Um, and the US can help. Um, we can help educationally. Um, my, my boss at the NISA Centre, Ambassador James Oroko, uh, in, in the year 2000 suggested reaching out to Yemen by generating internationally you know, at least 2,000 scholarships. Well, why not 20,000? Um, whereby you, know, you, you, you take people from Yemen for a four-year educational programme so that when they return, they can contribute to the much-needed lack of human capacity and then they have an understanding of the global context. So, scholarships. In terms of security sector reform, the US is fully engaged with Yemeni security sector reform and restructuring of the army. CENTCOM has already run four or five workshops in Yemen looking at restructuring the Ministry of Defence and, uh, sorry, reforming the Ministry of Defence and restructuring the army. Uh, I'm going to, uh, to Yemen in September to run a curriculum development workshop for the Yemeni Military Educational Institution to try and foster critical thinking and support the restructuring of the army. And work is ongoing with Yemen's Coast Guard. More needs to happen, but there is stuff going on. Um, as far as humanitarian assistance to social well-being is concerned, um, to foster better civil-military relations and support to reconnecting Yemen's military back to its people, the US can champion, in my opinion, the provision of funds from GCC countries so that the Yemen army can, village by village, extend the message that the central government cares. You know, maybe a, a novel idea, but getting troops to provide much needed food and water, uh, working in support of local councils and with tribes, notwithstanding the threat from uh, the militants, could be a mechanism to help Yemen's national dialogue process and maybe also help counter the Al-Qaeda rhetoric and, and, and narrative. And I accept this is not food and water security in a classic sense, and I accept it's short term, but it can provide relief in the short term, and we are saying there is a humanitarian crisis. So, you know, use your, your army, they have the facilities and capacity to do it, and, and find the money to ensure it happens. And in some ways, how better than to, to uh, you know, get direct government interaction with the people? And through that, you can gauge, you know, first of all, if the timing of the national dialogue is right, or whether maybe we need more time for talks about talks we have, before we have talks about a national dialogue. Uh, and also, you can check whether the CT campaign is working at the micro level. Um, and the US can certainly encourage countries to provide some form of humanitarian assistance funding if it is a crisis. Infrastructure. Um, back to Ambassador Bodine's point about aid and port. Um, absolutely. Um, but it's not going to be the US that pays for it. 
and the opportunity presented for GCC countries with a re refurbished and usable Aden port and the Yemeni Coast Guard suppressing piracy is surely obvious. So, you know, why aren't we doing that? My final point I'd make is that I read a, a paper about a US-Yemen strategic partnership uh, based on this rebalancing into the Indian Ocean region uh, and uh, you know the, the, the rebalancing I mentioned earlier on and I maintain that longer term that still makes sense. I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Super. Thank you, um, Professor Sharp. Uh, and we've had uh, a marvelous uh, set of uh, four presentations on a variety of topics, uh, subjects, and we only have about 35 questions, um, yeah. <laughs> which uh, shows the uh, stimulation of what these speakers' remarks have produced. I'll read. Uh, maybe five at a time uh, so that the speakers can, can begin thinking if they want to respond to any of them or all of them and how. Um, here we go. Uh, no one has uh, mentioned the delimitating uh, the um, delimiting uh, impact of uh, Yemen's productivity and consumption of cot, Q-A-T, a leaf uh, that um, is uh, chewed and its juices ingested for um, various effects on the uh, chewer. Uh, but it does take place for several hours during a day and has an impact mainly in the north, on the productivity of the workforce, as well as the drain on scarce water resources. Um, might one or more of you comment on that? Um, what types of activity um, could one envision as in days of old, where Aden uh, served as the um, entrepot uh, for Djibouti, for Eritrea, Ethiopia, for Sudan, and uh, southwestern uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, uh, being on the Horn of Africa uh, provides the situation of Yemen being a dilemma on a horn. Um, what about the popular councils and tribal militias uh, in their involvement and utility? And what is the water crisis in Yemen? And after all of these, not years, but decades of uh, prices coming down per unit for cameras, for computers, for many other mechanical gadgets, what's the obstacle for um, greater desalination uh, in its role uh, for producing water in Yemen? Uh, these are uh, the first set of five uh, questions. Let me let me jump in, uh, Gott. Uh, you know, uh, 
What is it? Thirty-five thousand Americans die on the road due to alcohol-related deaths every year. The burden that alcohol uh, uh, produces on the economy and on society is tremendous. But we keep on drinking. Uh, we think that uh, somehow caught uh, is is uh, something that is a, is a, is a, is a should be eliminated. We should sort of morally beat the Yemenis up because they chew this gods. Um, you know, we should look at our own house uh, before we go on a moral crusade against the Yemenis. A couple of things of clarification. It's a stimulant. Uh, stimulants generally are good for productivity, you know. Uh, they call it a narcotic only because it's a... Stimulants are good for productivity. They call it a narcotic only because that's, it has two meanings. It's a legal term and it's a pharma, pharmaceutical, pharmacology. Uh, the legal term is, means it's a controlled substance, that's all. But pharmacologically, it is not a narcotic. It does not put you to sleep. It wakes you up. It keeps you going. Okay, so, you know, it's good for productivity. In terms of its water use, in terms of its water use, uh, it uses about 40% of the water that's used in, in agriculture. Uh, and uh, about 90% of Yemeni water is used in agriculture, okay? About 10% is used for uh, consumption and for industrial uses. So what, what that tells us is that uh, th- there's tremendous opportunity or there's tremendous uh, space for transferring water into uh, other uses from agriculture. The, the problem in, in, in Yemeni agriculture is... Uh, 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 the the uh, effectivity of, of water use. I, I'm, I'm missing a word here. Sorry, I'm getting old. Uh, the the, uh, the they could be used far more efficiently. It's the question of efficiency. Uh, and there's all kinds of technologies, and Yemenis have capacity. We talk about building Yemeni uh, technical capacities. There are lots of very highly trained Yemenis. Uh, the problem is political. It's empowering these people. So, for example, in the middle of Ministry of, of, of Agriculture and of, of uh, Irrigation, there are very capable people who have plans. There's a very nice World Bank plan for managing uh, uh, Yemen's water resources. Yemen's water resources, uh, Yemen has no external source of, of water, a river coming in or something like this. It's all from the rain. And Yemenis have been drawing uh, at about 160% rate of, of annual renewal. So they're drawing on the future using the new uh, tube well uh, technology. Uh, the tube well technology needs, is, again, state capacity. The old mechanisms for the, for managing the uses of water don't work when you have tube well. There's no uh, regulation. There's no knowledge of when the water is actually running out, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And this needs to be coordinated on a on a wider basin than the traditional structures of Yemeni society are set up. The World Bank has a nice project. The Ministry of of, of, in, of, of Irrigation has a nice plan to do this. It needs politically to be politically empowered. Again, it's a back to the question of, 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 of political sources, of political capacity. Then uh, the question of salination, desalinization. Desalinization at this point requires lots of capital. I mean, uh, the, the Yemen has, has water resources opposed to the Gulf, which has no resources, uh, water resources, uh, but they have lots of capital, so they can put it into desalinization. Yemen, it's not economically feasible for them to do that, though there are people who are working on much less capital-intense means of, of dealing with desalinization, and in the future this possibly could be the case. Okay, hey, can I jump in? Yes. Um, okay, first of all, I want to underscore that, you know, gut is a symptom, not a cause of problems. Um, it doesn't suppress productivity, as, as Charles says. It's, it's more of, it's 
like drinking a whole lot of Starbucks. Uh, and if you want to cause a problem here, shut down all the Starbucks. Um, but it reflects unemployment and underemployment rather than causes um, a lack of productivity. Uh, the water squandering is, is a question, as, as Charles said, of irrigation methods. Uh, so even if you were to replace got with um, some other crop, you would still have the water depletion issue. Um, so if, if, you, if you really want to get at the got issue, create jobs um, and improve the irrigation system rather than going after got. Um, it's, it's missing, you know, a carry nation approach to, to God is not going to do us any good. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the about egg and pork. Um, because I think it's a, a critical element in in the long term st- uh, stability and sustainability of of Yemen. It- Aden was the second busiest port in the world before 1967, and the shutting down of the Suez Canal crippled it, uh, and the government in South Yemen finally killed it. We did a study at Princeton uh, last year on whether or not Aden could actually be revitalized as an international port um, and went into it with great hope but but some skepticism and came out with with a great deal of confirmation that it is doable. Um, It certainly has the location. Um, you have the labor, uh, as we've talked about. There is a huge labor pool, and it is relatively inexper- uh, unskilled. But Yemenis have a well-deserved reputation for being good, hard workers. They need the skill set, um, but they can still do it. It would not be serving East Africa. Uh, the port of Djibouti is being developed to serve East Africa, and that's fine. But there's enough traffic through the Bab el-Mandab for Aden to serve as a very credible transshipment port um, the light manufacturing, uh, the Nike assembly plant kind of thing, where you would be creating employment um, for Yemenis, you would be creating investment. Uh, there is a, an Aden-free zone. Um, so we've looked at this, and it is extraordinarily doable. It does take the political will um, as much as the international capital and domestic capital, but uh, this is the one great resource in addition to human capital that Yemen has in coming and we have there is a plan now on the table on how you can put the capital, the labor and the port together and quite possibly drive the Yemeni economy into sustainability. Uh, I have a realistic comment about um, GAP if I may. I mean, we, we have to educate the Yemenis so they can make the choices in the yeah. same way me, we make choices about alcohol, cigarettes, sex, drugs, rock and roll. I mean, you know, you have to educate so people can make choices. For all of them. Indeed. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and once they're educated, they can then draw their own conclusions. But, but currently, with an uneducated approach to it, you stand more chance of preventing middle-aged men watching sport at the weekend in America than you yeah. do of stopping Yemeni chewing cat. All right. Additional questions. Um, if one accepts the pre- premise that uh, only or mainly the South could win the war against Al Qaeda uh, with uh, the support of the U.S. military assistance, um, what would be the prospects of the South? 
playing this role where the U.S. to at least de facto uh, show a willingness to help the South uh, to obtain its objectives of ending political perceived neglect and economic um, uh, neglect in a possible de facto federation between the South and the North. Gregory uh, Johnson, do you want to keep Yes, on? no, this is for you. Oh, okay. This one. Um, and, and others. Bob, if you would comment, and Barbara, anybody feel free to comment. Yes, go ahead. Right. So at least the way I understand the question is, is sort of what role would the South have or could the South play a more positive role um, in combating al-Qaeda if there were either if the South was independent or if it had some sort of federation? Um, you know, it's a difficult... I mean, obviously dealing with hypotheticals is a bit difficult, but I, I mean, the, the South and, and the Southern movement right now is, is so divided. Um, you know, there, there have been calls by different Southern leaders, many of them in exile. There have been um, talks with, um, you know, different individuals for Southerners to who are members of the Southern movement to join with the Yemeni military in combating al-Qaeda. I just don't... Um, I just don't see the South as, as sort of feasible as an independent state or, or in some sort of, uh, I, I don't know what the federation would look like. Um, you know, there's a lot of change going on. I, I guess I just don't see that as a very realistic um, possibility. So before going too far down the, down the rabbit hole of what the hypothetical would look like, I, I don't think the hypothetical is that possible. But others may disagree, so um, how about it? Yeah, well, let me just add to that, that uh, uh, the South, I mean, Hadi is a southerner, and he organized a southern military unit for from Ali Nasha Muhammad's men, and they put back the. So they won. They already did it. So the South has 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 done the job of, of defeating Ansar Sharia, Sharia in, in, in the South right now. Uh, so uh, you know yeah. what what South? Yeah, I I, I want to just very briefly address this this question of, of federation, uh, which gets bandied about a lot, um, and it's always a North South uh, federation. Um, the one of the and I, I will tell you quite openly, I, I don't really support the idea because I don't think that, that there is good empirical evidence on exactly where you would draw the line. The old north-south line, um, the old Turkish-British line that ended up as the north-south Yemen line, is 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 very artificial. Uh, it doesn't reflect uh, the demographics of the country. And so, you know, to be perfectly honest, most of the people that I've listened to, talked with, who talk about about Southern Federation are Aidenese, um, and and that's not the South. Um, the the real question that Yemen needs to work on going forward, and I think we're seeing some evidence of that and, and increasing uh, attention to it here, is how do you integrate all the elements of Yemen, and it, it has one major. Um, Benefit that we didn't mention, um, as opposed to uh, other states that have failed or in, or in far greater conflict, is that there's a very strong sense of, of Yemeni identity uh, in the country. There are legitimate concerns about various regions feeling marginalized, uh, feeling dispossessed, feeling politically excluded. Um, but that can be worked within a stronger 
central government that has a governing continuum that goes to the local councils. Dividing the country, again, along the old north-south lines is not going to solve the al-Qaeda problem. It's not going to solve the economic problem. It's not going to solve any of the other problems. It just will create two states that are facing the same sort of problem. So um, I don't really think the federation is, a, is an idea that, that needs to go forward and we have quite a few other questions. I'll read them out here. Um, in your opinion, how big a threat does uh, former President Saleh's continued influence have on the instability or the such stability as exists in Yemen? Um, might he uh, be like a Prince Sihanouk who was expelled from um, Cambodia but returned? No. Or Juan uh, Carlos, uh, no. likewise in Spain? Um, and how could you democratically uh, preclude his name from being on a future uh, ballot? Uh, scholarships, next question, would be nice. But not even Yemen's Fulbright scholars can get a visa to the United States thanks to the um, terms and uh, rules of the Department of Homeland Security. Um, and a significant number of scholarships are squandered simply because of this uh, visa uh, problem. Third, uh, none of you have mentioned uh, Islam or Islamist uh, per se uh, as a force in the country. How different uh, is Islam in an organized way, for example, compared to the uh, Muslim Brotherhood? And um, can one say that uh, as a result of uh, after uh, the uh, Arab Spring, so to speak, that the Yemen is more or less de facto divided as it has been in the past between uh, North and South. Uh, what game or strategy, if any at all, is Iran uh, playing in Yemen? Uh, Can we just try to hit some of those really quickly because that's about yeah. another hour and a half worth of yes. talk. Uh, um, but uh, can you speak about the Shia okay. Zaidi insurgency in the north okay. and its impact and any involvement by Iran, if uh, only only <laughs> rhetorical? Okay. Well, let, let me let me do a couple of those and then pass them down. On on Salah's return. Um, I think in his own mind he certainly thinks he can. Um, but I think one of the things that was most significant about the, the referendum in February um, was that what it was was a, a very strong demonstration by the, the Yemeni people, uh, whether or not they were, you know, it was a one-candidate presidency. But what it really was was a referendum on the end of the Saleh era. Uh, and it, it, it put a final, clear, popularly endorsed uh, signal that this era is over. We're moving forward into the transition. The U.S. government also took a really remarkable step about a month ago um, where there was an executive order put out by the president and it's one of the first times I've ever seen prospective sanctions. Uh, normally when we sanction people, we're sanctioning people and organizations for something they've already done that we don't like. 
this was a very interesting executive order that's, that just put on notice persons and entities not otherwise named who disrupt the transition will be sanctioned. Um, and it, it sort of put a line in the sand. Um, I think obviously that was directed at Salah and, and members of his family. It was also directed at people like Ali Mosin. It was directed at the al Akbar brothers. Uh, anyone who might think that this transition was open for renegotiation. Um, and then that was sort of underscored by a UN Security Council resolution. So the the terms of no, you really can't come back, I think, are been very clearly stated by the Yemeni people, by our government, by the UN. On the scholarships, we're talking about Yemenis coming here. Um, I would like to see um, uh, our Fulbright scholars going back again, and, and you know the next generation of Greg Johnsons being able to go out to Yemen, or Greg Johnson being able to go back out to Yemen. Um, but the real issue is bringing Yemenis here for education, and 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 I will I will say that one of the things that I'm I'm most proud of. Uh, accomplishing as ambassador was getting the, the scholarship started again for Yemenis come, to come to the U.S. Those are the numbers that I think were being mentioned. Um, and, you know, to the extent that there is, is capacity for Yemenis to, to succeed at school here, we have an active scholarship program. High schoolers, undergraduates, and graduate students. And that needs to be very, very aggressively funded. If you look at those in the Yemeni government, civil society, the media, on and on and on, who have been the real forces, the agents of change in Yemen. They go all the way back to people who got uh, scholarships from us in the 50s. Uh, this is probably one of our greatest positive legacies in Yemen has been scholarships, and I would strongly endorse it. I will leave the other questions to my colleagues. Um, I'll, I'll jump in on, on President Saleh as well. Um, I've been fairly critical of the GCC process that got rid of President Saleh and brought Hadi into power. I, I thought that the U.S. handled that um, fairly poorly. Um, and I think one of the difficulties that at least I on this panel have in talking about Yemen is that it's very difficult to talk about Yemen as this single place yeah. and what's going on because with the situation that you have up in the north with, with the Houthis is much different than what's taking place in, in Sana'a which is essentially capital politics or what's taking place in Abiyan and in Shabwa and, and in Hadramut or what's taking place in Aden and so the GCC deal was primarily about capital politics but it didn't really resolve any of these essentially what it did is it papered over this sort of four figured fight if you will between Ali Mus and Al Ahmar the command of the 1st Armored Division, President Saleh and his family, uh, another Beit al-Ahmar, the al-Ahmar brothers, as well as now President Hadi. And none of these were dealt with in, in sort of a decisive manner. What they were they, they kind of just kicked the can down the road a little bit. And so now you have President Hadi and the international community, and, and I think Ambassador Bodine did a great job referencing the executive order. They're, they're essentially trying to erode the ground from under the feet of President Saleh and his family. And this is uh, it's a dangerous game. It's not one that we know the um, the outcome of yet. And I, I think there there are still um, a a significant possibility that things could go um, go dramatically wrong. I hope that isn't the case. Um, the referendum wasn't even a referendum. The Yemenis didn't have the option to vote no. There was only one 
one thing. They could only vote yes for Hadi. And there's no guarantee that not President Saleh, but rather Ahmed, his, his eldest son, will put himself forward for what's supposed to be um, the new election in 2014, which we're coming up close. So is Hadi only going to stay for these two years as a caretaker, or is he going to move on? There are a lot of unanswered questions that just haven't been dealt with, and I, I think um, what we saw in 2011 was a unique opportunity that unfortunately was, was sort of half-flubbed, at least in my opinion. Uh, we have about uh, two more, uh, three more minutes here, and so uh, consider that in terms of your response here. Uh, one from the U.S. government assistance, uh, 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 GAO is not assistance, government, no. government accountability, accountability uh, office. What, uh, what, what comes first, security assistance, institutional capacity building, developmental assistance? Easy to say all three at the same time time, but uh, can we be a little bit more precise in terms of uh, that? In terms of the immigration of Yemeni nationals to the U.S. and their alleged involvement in drug and weapons trafficking and their linkage uh, to um, uh, Arabian uh, uh, Al-Qaeda and, and the Arabian Peninsula. And please, please mention Mali in, in that context if it has any relevance. And the American University in Cairo educates a number of Yemeni students, some on State Department scholarships and would be thrilled to host more. But how do you deal with brain drain when um, so many want to actually immigrate to the United States? Uh, what is the uh, effective strategy to limit that or preclude it? Uh, these are the last. Yes. Bob, you go first. Thank you, yeah, um, I think they're, they're very complex questions. Mm -hmm. you, you've got to approach Yemen holistically, and uh, you know it's like how do you deal with a house on fire? You know, you really need to give it all a good watering rather than try and constrain your efforts to one place. Um, and the situation in Yemen is is so deteriorated by comparison to the sort of Western standards that we would apply to determining that it has deteriorated, um, that you just need you know, a holistic approach across multiple, multiple uh, lines of uh, development, lines of support, to try and then overall, you know, on a balanced basis, you know, bring, bring Yemen, Yemen up. Um, I, I, I think the, uh, the issue of brain drain, um, well, that's, that's that is clearly clearly um, something that, that we would need to find a way of countering, but we do that by generating jobs in Yemen that are worth returning to um, and, and we you know we encourage the people who we bring to the u s but i 'm also saying germany uk Italy i mean the international community steps up and suddenly there's there 's these scholarships. Um, I mean, there are plenty of people in Yemen who have got nothing to do at all. I mean, you know, the unemployment rate is enormous. You know, um, let's 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 get them into some form of education, but then let's link that to jobs on their return, um, and let's incentivize them um, from a you know a feeling of Yemen, um, you know, as a country that they want to go back to to shape the future. Um, and uh, yeah, there will be people who will stay put. There always are, um, but. Um, I think we can counter that by making Yemen worth returning to. 
when they've uh, when they've completed their scholarship. And I absolutely agree with the point that uh, Ambassador Bodie made about uh, some of the the key influences in the change process in Yemen were people who in 1950, whatever it was, 50, came to 60, America, 70, 80s, and right came yeah. came to America and spent a year here doing a master's degree or something. Um, and uh, so we so we must must invest. Uh, one last short statement from Charles and Gregory and Barbara. Uh, here, I wanted to go back to the previous question about Islam. Uh, Islam is uh, it, it, one of the things that you see in in, in, in Yemen is that uh, Islam is is changing. Uh, that, uh, religion is important in Yemen, just as in the United States. Uh, and one of the trends, one of the important trends that you see is is that uh, broader based, let's say, geographically broader based uh, uh, identities are growing stronger. That that Yemen's very strong local ties are loosening and that uh, stronger national and international ties are growing. People in Yemen see themselves as part of a wider world, as a wider, and this is, this is, you see this in religion. Uh, but religion is always, has to be seen in context. Uh, and I think one of the, the, the places we see this in context is in the north, in the Houthis. Uh, a lot of people see them as sort of, uh, see the Houthis as, as a Zaidi revival movement. Uh, and in, in part it is. But really what it is, is a fight against government of Abuse, just as in the south, the rebellion in the south has got the same roots as the rebellion in the north, uh, and it was led by you know Sada was led, led by religious aristocracies, uh, and they they do talk about religion, but they were talking about religious rights, the, the the ability to practice religion, their religion as they see it in in Yemen, not to impose their religion on the rest of of, of Yemen, uh, or to exclude others from doing what they want to do, but just to have the right to do so. And you see this in in uh, in in their stance towards the national dialogue. Uh, they don't pretend to take over the Yemeni state uh, and and uh, uh, they don't pretend to succeed. They see themselves as part of the Yemeni state. They're fighting for rights within the Yemeni state. Um, and so uh, if, if we understand the, the nature of the conflict there, we won't conflate it and participate. And this is why I fear giving a GCC lead in Yemen. Uh, the Saudis are, are conflating that. The, the Saudis are the ones that are uh, inflaming sectarian ties in the north by funding the the uh, the uh, Salafis and, and the Dara Hadith and Damaj and urging them to fight because of their paranoia about about Shiism. Um, so uh, you know if 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 we see uh, Islam as part of a wider context, uh, often the roots are uh, you know quite understandable in terms of uh, local uh, conflicts as as in the north. Last uh, short statement, uh, Gregory and Barbara. Right, I I just. The, the topic of this panel was was where is Yemen going, and, and I think what, what we've done is is we've laid out some of the problems, some of which we we knew of, and, and some of which we're well aware of. But I think it's it's and and I think we all agree with what Charles said, or at least I agree um, that that the long term strategy is a necessity, and that's where we're going to see the success. But it's going to be quite difficult to get there. And it's, so the, these, next, these next two years are going to be um, quite key, because none of these problems that all of us have brought up, none of the issues that are facing Yemen have been dealt with, nor are they being dealt with um, in any sort of a sustainable or, or comprehensive manner. And so how it sort of um, navigates this, I, I think, is, it will provide the answer to today's panel. Um, 
I think you know what what you've heard are are four people looking at Yemen from from four very different perspectives um, and being in furious agreement with each other. Um, that this is not a state that has failed, uh, but it is a state that faces considerable challenges and problems, um, and that the amount of time that is left to work with Yemen on turning this around or at least starting the process on turning it around is limited and will take the international community and specifically the United States um, having a much broader focus of where we are putting our assistance. It's not a question of more money. It's a question of using the money more smartly, but broader and longer term and focus far more on stability and sustainability challenges rather than focusing solely on the security challenges. Um, as a wrap-up uh, set of comments here, uh, what is um, what is one to make of the question of Yemen going where with regard to the GCC? It's in that regard really going not exactly nowhere. But its uh, prospects, its chances, its realistic opportunities to become a member of the GCC, a full-fledged one, are somewhere between zero and zero. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, having been to all of the summits where this has been discussed, it is not a non-issue at all. Uh, indeed, there's uh, great empathy and sympathy for Yemen's plight, and the amount of money that has been pledged by the GCC countries are in the billions uh, there, but they are unanimous that um, it's not going to go anywhere without, effectively, without the capacity building that is long-term and uneven and will involve um, all the right kinds of international assistance possible, as well as support for indigenous um, activists in that regard. And what many people have overlooked, and it certainly didn't come fourth year, is that in the 1990s, um, Yemen was for a brief period a kind of poster child for the World Bank and the IMF mm-hmm. in terms of reforms and the implementation uh, of those reforms. No one going to the country consistently during that period could fail to see the positive impact that that had. So we're not starting from nothing in terms of, of experience. Second, Secondly, the degree of freedom of the press in Yemen throughout the 90s um, has no echo anywhere else in the Arabian Peninsula or near echo. And the freedom of association, likewise, to um, Mm -hmm. form, establish, and have respected uh, political parties as diverse as the Yemen Socialist Party, which had long been backed by Moscow, and Islam, a a group uh, wrongly uh, described as uh, religious uh, because it wasn't that mainly or alone, but also with a variety of conservative groups, uh, tribal, religious, and other. And people forget that Madeleine Albright could have chosen any country in the world in the 1990s to host uh, what was being highlighted then as an emerging democracies forum. Mm -hmm. But she chose Yemen 
of all of the 140 developing countries because of what it was doing, what it was, what it promised to be, what it had already uh, achieved. And I attended that as one of the three American uh, representatives, but the others came from Mongolia, they came from Mali, they came from Georgia, they came from El Salvador. They came from Malawi. They came from Mozambique. Uh, I've seen nothing like it before or since in um, international affairs. Uh, this has been a very rich session with the provision of what we hoped would be informed information and insight that would challenge established thoughts and what passes for conventional wisdom. We're all the better for coming here. And thank you, Ms. Bisson, for allowing us to use these facilities there. Thank you. And thank all of you for coming and our speakers.